0: We're continuing our series in what we call Emmanuel. We have the big I there for the I-God, and um, we're essentially, that's a new app we're making, putting out, you know. uh, but uh, today we're in the second part. We're, talking, we're going to look basically at the two genealogical records. Sounds really boring right now, but essentially the underlying issue is why does the the uh, virgin birth matter. There are a lot of people who ask that question when they first begin to study scriptures and say, well, what difference does it make whether Jesus was born of a virgin? And ironically, the answer comes most profoundly through these two genealogical records that we'll talk about in Matthew and in Luke's gospel. But if you turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, uh, I want to begin reading there. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read this passage? Chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, the text reads, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as He was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With whom I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Haley. Let's begin with prayer. Father God, I ask as we look to your word that you would give us your help, Lord, your understanding and insight, so that your word might find not only a place in our minds, but even more importantly, would begin to move within our hearts that you would stir us, Lord, and you would draw us close to you. Because you've said in your word, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Help us to know your truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In this age of instant and constant information, I think something sadly becomes obvious. We live in a broken world. Uh, Even though politicians and pundits and prognosticators spend endless hours explaining and blaming one another for the circumstances, it doesn't seem to make any difference because the world, for the most part, still remains broken. Despite the promises that they and the claims that one way or another they're the man or the woman with a new plan, a new program that can fix it all, uh, when we look back over the years, we realize it really doesn't change very much. There's not really any improvement or alteration. In fact, one of the things I think it's important for us to realize is when we talk about the future, the scripture warns and kind of promises that it won't get fixed. In fact, the opposite will happen. Timothy, for example, in 2 Timothy, or Paul in 2 Timothy 3.1, he says, be sure of this, be certain of this, know this for certain. The last days will be, essentially I would translate it, dangerous, fierce, perilous, savage. In fact, one translation went on to explain it this way. It says, men will be selfish, Mercenary, boastful, haughty, and blasphemous, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, impure, incapable of affection, merciless, slanderous, wanting in self-control, brutal, careless of the right, treacherous, reckless, puffed up with pride. They will love pleasure more than they love God, and while they retain the outward form of religion... They will not allow it to influence them. In other words, what Paul was saying, and as he goes on to say, things will not get better as time moves on, but rather, he said, evil men and deceivers will go from bad to worse. So much so that Jesus gave this prediction in Luke 21, speaking again of the last times, he says, on earth nations will be in anguish and in perplexity, and men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. I love the word perplexity he uses there because it literally means a problem with no apparent solution. And that really does describe in many ways the world that you and I are living in today. We, we see these terrible things happen, we these overwhelming problems that are on the horizon and there's a lot of conversation. I, I found myself, my wife was in California with visiting her mother this week, and so I spent a lot of TV time, more than I usually do, watching the TV news shows. It's been a while, and it was interesting in these panels watching these people getting so angry at each other as they were arguing about the nature of the problems and what the solution should be. I expected them to get up and start duking it out right there in front of the camera and the real issue is that the frustration is rising so high in so many people that the only way that they can deal with it is no longer to verbally express it shouting can't do it they can actually become physically responsive in ways that aren't helpful And you and I might simply ask the question, why is it this way? Because inside of us, there's this part of us that yearns for peace among men, that Christmas message of goodwill towards men and and peace on earth. We yearn to see that in our life, and yet it seems like it's like a mirage that may appear momentarily and occasionally, and then suddenly it evaporates and it just goes back to the way it is. There's a reason that suicides go up after Christmas, So many people look forward to the holidays and have so many warm memories and anticipations and there is such severe disappointment when they realize that the sun still goes down at 3.30. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm digressing into my own issues. (laughs) So why is it this way? Well, according to the Bible, the world is not just a little broken. (laughs) Rather, as Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17.9, he says it's hopelessly, woefully, desperately sick and incurable. It's it's broken to such a degree that it's not something that can be fixed. And what the Bible does, it attributes it all to the same singular cause. We want to talk about the complexity of the players and all the different kinds of things that are involved, but when it's all said and done, the Bible reduces it down to one simple central issue, one cause, and it's the word sin. In Galatians 3.22, Paul said it, he says, "...the whole world is shut up and imprisoned by sin." The whole world is shut up. It's locked into this thing and it's held as a prisoner so that when we talk about sin from a biblical point of view, it tells us that Satan uses sin in three very powerful ways. He uses it to enslave and imprison men. In 2 Timothy 2.26, Paul said, we are taken captive by him to do his will." So that as someone was speaking to me about a a, a current uh, man who lives in a big white house in Washington, D.C., and talking about somebody being so angry with this politician and the way he's doing things, I had to stop and remind him, saying, that any man who doesn't know Jesus has been taken captive by the enemy to do his will, and he is a victim, and hating them doesn't do anybody any good. What we do is we pray that God would set the captives free, not that he would kill them. So Satan, what he does is he takes hold of people's lives. He gets into their thought life. He gets into their value system, and he begins to draw them into captivity, and he holds them. And then what is his next objective? It is to kill them. Because in Romans 6.23, again, Paul said the wages are literally the, the payoff, the ultimate reward at the end of the journey of sin is death. And by implication, he's not saying just simply physical death. We all know that's coming for all of us, although we live as if it's not. But we know that physical death is the end of life's journey, but there is a spiritual death that is much more serious, much more frightening, that has negative consequences because if you know God, you have eternal life. If you don't know God, you have eternal death. Far more frightening than anything one might face on this planet. But thirdly, it condemns us to hell. Hell. That Satan enslaves and imprisons us, he, he seeks to kill us, and then he seeks to condemn us to hell simply because, as Jesus said in John 13, 3, 8, he said that if you don't know Jesus, you're condemned already. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world, I came to save it because men who don't know Christ, who reject him, are already living under condemnation. And the reward of that will come. The the punishment of it will come regardless of what we do. And that becomes, I think, the most troubling thing to recognize. That in face of this spiritual reality, you and I are powerless to do anything about it. We don't have any capacity to break free from the entanglement of sin, the imprisonment, and the consequences that it brings into our lives. That we can't fix it by being more moral or more ethical or by doing something sacrificial or something that impresses other people, especially ourselves, because essentially it's a stain that cannot be removed. So that what men are left with is an inner yearning. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8.21, he says the, the creation itself, even the very ground that we're standing on, if you will, he says yearns to be liberated from the bondage of decay, Brought into and be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. He goes on, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. We ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So that when you look out at your friends and your neighbors and the people you encounter in the malls and the streets and traffic and everywhere around you, what's so important to understand is whether they are a believer or not a believer, whether they accept Christ or reject Christ, that inner yearning is already there. It's already present. There is a searching in their life for something that would somehow break the spell of the negativity and the darkness that seems to surround us at every point. Because even having a great positive mental attitude can only carry you so far before some of the dark realities of life begin to overwhelm you. But the wonderful good news is that God loves mankind too much to leave us with nothing more than just a yearning. That's the great message. He leaves us with something more than just a a wanting for it to be different. So what God did is He devised a plan that would provide ultimate, final, and the only solution to mankind's problem. We talked last week in 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul put it so simply, he says, beyond call question, the mystery of godliness is great. God appeared in a body. The word mystery is a Greek word, mysterion. It literally means something that you can't know by ordinary means. You can't reason it out. You can't experience it. You can't go even to a a spiritual experience and necessarily know it. It's a mystery that is only known as God draws back the curtain that keeps us from being able to see beyond what otherwise perception could be. So that literally, we often talk about having this aha experience, this conceptualization, this opening up of the mind and the heart to something that lies far outside of the realm of any natural or even supernatural ability someone might claim to have. It's to be able to see God, to recognize that God is with us. Somebody went up to J.K. Chesterton one time, the great English journalist, and Basically uh, asked him what he would do if he were to meet God. What would you do if God were here right now? And Chesterton, in his classic style, turned to the man and said, he is. In other words, I see him. Why don't you? And the reason we can see is because God gives us eyes to see. He gives us ears to hear. And that's something that you and I as believers should never to treat lightly or, or assume is just a natural thing because the old, the great hymn, Amazing Grace says it so well, right? I was lost, now I was found, I was blind, but now I see. There is no better way in human terms to explain the dynamic that suddenly God opens it up and I see what I could never see. I remember sitting on the bed next to my father as he was passing away from cancer had given his life to Jesus just shortly before that, and he asked me this question. He said, how could I have been so blind for so long? I said, Dad, because it's, we can't open our own eyes. God is the only one who can open our eyes. God is the only, Why did God wait to this moment in your life? I have no idea. God knows I tried. <laughs> if I thought Putin, toothpicks under the eyelids would have worked. I would have done it. But God in His mysterious way, the mystery of godliness opened the eyes of your understanding so you could see and believe and know eternal life. God was so earnest as we talked about last week, he became a man. As, as John, we read last week, he said, the Word of God became human and lived here on earth among us, and he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We have seen his glory and the glory of the only Son of the Father that I have seen, I have experienced, I've encountered something that only God allows us to encounter. And as we studied last week, this was not an afterthought, but this was God's forethought from before the very creation of the heavens and the earth. That's why, from the earliest chapters of the Bible, God began to reveal His plan with ever-increasing clarity that altogether there's 332 different prophecies in the Old Testament all foretelling about His coming, and and they do it such... Amazing specificity, it's very specific, very detailed. Things like Genesis 49.10 tells us that he will come from the tribe of Judah. Second Samuel 7.16 tells us that he will be a son of David. As he prophesied to David and said, Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall last forever. Again, as we talked about Isaiah 7.14 that the virgin will be with child and we'll give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel, literally God with us, God here in our midst, that he would be born in Bethlehem and that we're told in Micah 5.2 that not only would be born in that ancient city, but he would be from old and ancient days. In other words, he would come from eternity into time to be part of our lives. Now, don't you think that those who read these things and in, in their own time, said to themselves, "What?" <laughs> what? I mean, how can, he, how can a virgin become a child?" And then we look at that child and call it God. How, how can he be born in the city of Bethlehem and at the same time, be from eternity? How is any of this possible? No wonder, Paul says it's a mysterion. What are the odds that one person could fulfill all 332 prophecies? Well, here it is. (laughs) Um, That's 840 with 97 zeros behind it. That's like, I don't know, it's a subatomic particle. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's just confoundingly... Uh, huge. It's, the probability is just beyond the ability to actually put your mind around it. And the point is simply this. It's not just anyone who could come along and fulfill all that was necessary to qualify as being the Messiah. Even if you take eight of those prophecies, one guy figured out, what is the likelihood that just eight of those 300 prophecies could be fulfilled by one person? And he said, it would be like taking a silver dollar and painting it red, and then covering the entire state of Texas, two feet in silver dollars, hiding that red one in the middle some way and saying, you got one chance to find it. That's a visual concept. I have trouble finding my car keys, and I know where I left them, or at least I think I know where I left them. But you see, to qualify as a Messiah, and most importantly, to including being a direct lineal descendant of King David, which would put you in position if there were a kingdom to be the next king of Israel. Prior to the birth of Jesus, even that only came down to one person. That's all it ever could come down to is one person. And it came down to this man, Joseph. It was of the tribe of Judah, who was a direct lineal descent of David. And yet, rather than living as a king, he is living in great humility, we might say, uh, in substance, uh, the verge of poverty. But more about that in a moment and why that was. But that's why Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogical record. Literally the word that's used there in, in the original is the genesis, the family tree. He starts by giving us Jesus' family tree. He says in verse 1 of Matthew, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he ends that in verse 16 by saying, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Again, Jesus could not be Christ, could not be the Messiah, without also being a direct descendant and a rightful heir to the throne of King David. That's why why Matthew begins writing to a Jewish audience. He wants them to understand that Jesus has the necessary human pedigree. But when we get to Luke's gospel. He also supplies a genealogical record, which starts off being similar, except he puts the whole thing in reverse order. He starts with Jesus and goes back. In fact, he goes all the way to Adam, not just to Abraham, as Matthew did, because he's trying to show Jesus as being human as well as divine. And he opens by saying this. He says in Luke three twenty three, he that is Jesus was the son, or so it was thought, of Joseph the son of Haley. Right away, you begin to realize that there seems to be some contradictions here because when you look at Matthew's lineage, he, he, he they both Matthew and Luke both follow the same lineage till they get to King Solomon, and then suddenly Luke takes us through Solomon's line, and and. Uh, I mean, excuse me, Luke takes us, Matthew takes us through Solomon's line and we find that uh, Luke takes us through another son of David, a, a son Nathan, and the genealogy split. But maybe most importantly is as I look at this, it says Jacob is the father of Joseph and Luke says, no, Haley was the father of Joseph. So which one was it? Now, it's interesting to me. I always get fascinated by people who jump on this and say, there you go, another one of those contradictions. And you have a whole websites dedicated to pointing out the, all the contradictions. And I, as I read through them, I think, did these guys ever read their Bibles? Because they're not contradictions at all. They just don't understand what's being said. So how do we explain that? Well, we have a chart. I always have a chart. <laughs> Love charts. Love um, charts and what we find is that we have these two family trees, and the first one, when you talk about Matthew's family tree, he provides a linear line of Jesus uh, as he was legally known, and his legal fatherhood, and Luke gives us his um, uh, biological family tree. In fact, if you can just fill out the rest of that thing, we can go through it there. Go ahead. So that Matthew has Joseph's family tree and, and Luke has Mary's. But here's the interesting thing. Of course, as I said, Luke starts by, with God and then he goes to Abraham and then he goes to David. But when we come to David, we find that the tree splits in two different directions. We have the line of Solomon from which all of the kings of Israel came. And there was a very clear order as to how that role of who could be the king of Judah and Israel Uh, followed. And then Mary, on the other hand, goes to another son by the name of Nathan. David had 16 sons, and Nathan was one of those 16. And it continues on, and where there's kind of a break there, you see, that in Matthew's genealogy, he talks about Jeconiah. And I want to come back to that in a moment because that's quite significant. He was one of the. In fact, Jeconiah was the last rightful king of the line of Judah. Nathan, of course doesn't follow the king's line, so it has a whole list of other people. But when you get to the bottom, basically, you find Joseph, and it says, who is married to Mary, but when it comes to Mary's line in Luke, it says, Joseph, who was assumed to be Jesus' father, but was not his father biologically. Now, what does all of that come down to? Well, essentially, it tells us that something happened. You had two separate gene- two genealogical lines that start off exactly the same. They're really one and the same, and then all of a sudden they split, and then all of a sudden they come back. How is that possible? Well, the explanation that we find is a thing called a Leverite marriage. And a Leverite marriage is a, a provision within the Mosaic law that says no man's family tree shall be left... Uh, undone. In other words, if a man dies without sons, there's a provision for him to continue to have children and to have his name carried forward. What we are pretty sure happened is that Joseph's father was a man named Jacob, who undoubtedly passed away before Joseph became uh, mature. He marries Mary, whose father has no children, no, no sons, excuse me, And so, in marrying Mary, what happens is that Haley essentially takes Joseph as being his son, and Joseph becomes the heir of everything that belongs to the line of Mary, and he becomes one with that line so that even though he is not Jesus' biological father, by the rights of adoption, he becomes Jesus' legal father. And what's interesting about this, and this might be a little complicated, but under Mosaic law, that if a man marries a woman who has a child, that child becomes his firstborn child and has all the rights, the privileges, authority, and powers so that everything that was given to his father would pass on to him. So that we have this interesting situation where we find that the house of Joseph and the house of Mary once again become one, so that even though Jesus is not biologically the son of Joseph, but rather biologically he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, Joseph still passes all of his rights of inheritance of kingship onto his son. Now, for those of you who are sitting there going, so What? What he say, Edith? I didn't follow any of that. Well, why is this even significant? Let me tell you why. There was a curse that was placed upon the house of King David. And the reason we find that Joseph is a man living in poverty is because the house of Joseph was cursed in such a way. In fact, in Jeremiah 22, verse 29, that prophet, speaking 600 years before Jesus is born, says this, O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. And then it's looking at King Jeconiah, the last rightful king of Judah, who is carried away into Babylon in captivity and dies in Babylon, never to return. It says the following of him, record this man as childless, for none of his offspring will prosper and none will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. So here's the conundrum that we're suddenly facing. If Jesus is the son of David, does it not say that no son of David would ever sit upon the throne because of the curse on Jeconiah? So what does God do? He passes that right of kingship over to Jesus, who biologically is not cursed because he's not part of the son. We look at Joseph's life, and here's this man living in a small village, just eking out a life, and anything but saying his life is prosperous. When the child is about to be born, they can't even find a place that's suitable to have the baby, so they stay inside a cave that's been converted into a barn. And that's where the child is born. So that we ask the question, why is Jesus not born in a a basilica instead of a barn? Why isn't he born in a mansion instead of a manger? It's because this curse that was on the house of David, because of the sins of the kings of Judah. But God found a way around that. He was able to pass the right of inheritance of kingship to Joseph, at the same time save that family life, save the house of David through adoption, through Jesus being born to Mary and being born sinless. It's a pretty marvelous and ingenious solution to an impossible problem, which in some ways has its own message, I think, to you and I. Because just on the surface, you and I are confronted with all sorts of problems and challenges of life but have you ever had an impossible problem? A situation that defied any kind of solution or answer that you have really kind of tr- racked your brain to say, how can we address this? How can we solve this? And I think the problem for many of us is we don't recognize that our God is the God of the impossible. I think many times how many people times people struggle with stuff that God could fix just like that, but you have not because you ask not. That what we would look from a prophetic point of view and saying, as soon as Jeremiah said this, the house of David was cursed, then suddenly, well, how in the world can God's promises be fulfilled to David? That his, his, his throne will last forever. How is that possible? Because no one will prosper. And yet God creates this unique plan that nobody else thinks of before Isaiah, who had spoken of it even 100 years before, gave. I'll, I'll come and I'll conceive myself inside of a virgin and I will be the biological father to this child, but he will be adopted into the line of the kings of Judah by his father. And I simply say that what God has is a solution for the issues that you're facing in your life. I know some of you are sitting there going, well, that's easy for you to say. It is. It's very easy. I just said it. Want me to say it again? (laughs) Very easy for me to say. (laughs) doesn't make it not true. It does not make it not true. But the whole point is that God simply says, look, I, I am the master of all things. I don't just turn, you know, multiply loaves or multiply fishes because people are hungry. In fact, I don't just simply... Raise people or awaken people from the sleep of death because my son says, Arise. I am the God who is a God of time, space, and matter, that I control all things and I orchestrate them according to my will. And when he turns to us and says, Ask of me, ask of me, <laughs> and I will give it. And yet, many of us kind of become stunned or stop because we think, Well, that's too much to ask. And so we don't even ask. Or what if I ask and He doesn't come through? Well, I, I admit, there are times I ask and He doesn't give me what I want because what I want isn't really what I would want if I really understood what I was actually asking for. You know, God says, just ask me. That God could draw t- to a conclusion something that was unconcludable. He could resolve an obstacle that was unresolvable. And He can do that in your life just the way He does in my life. But that's why Jesus taught that all men should pray and not faint. We shouldn't give up. We shouldn't stop praying. We shouldn't stop asking. But we should continue to seek him face and call out to Him. But you may be back at the original point of saying, but I still don't see why any of it matters. Let me tell you why the virgin birth matters in short form. Number one, the obvious thing is, it was the only way in which God could fulfill the prophecies. That Jesus was the son of David. He was the son of Mary and Joseph. He was also the son of God. He referred to himself often in the prophetic form of being the son of man. None of that could take place. Had not Jesus found a way through virgin birth to fulfill the prophecy? But secondly, it was the only way in which God could become fully man and fully God. And many of us kind of, in our mind, can't help but kind of dissecting Jesus so that He's half man and half God. And you would look at me and say, well, I don't get it. How can he be fully man and be fully God? Well, I don't get it anyway. It's part of the mystery. But it's the only way it could happen. Because otherwise what you're saying, if Jesus was just born of Joseph, the son of Joseph, then what he is is he's a man like you and me. And we begin to buy into a theology that simply says by our own goodness we can raise ourselves to a place of sanctity and holiness and we can accomplish our own salvation and at that point his death on the cross becomes completely meaningless. And we commit one of the most grievous blasphemies to say there's no worth and there's no value in his sacrifice on the cross. Which really brings me to the third reason why it matters. Because it's the only way in which God could provide a pure, sinless, and therefore acceptable sacrifice for your sins and my sins. The only way that God could do it is by having a man who was like us in every way and yet never sinned. Who was tempted in every single way and yet never yielded to that temptation. Because what did the law require of a sacrifice? It said it had to be pure, without spot, and without blemish. How many of us feel that's a description of us? Now, I don't have to go into the physical dynamic of it. I mean, it's like none of us (laughs) can look in the mirror and say, well, I'm without spot or blemish. You know, I mean, what makeup can cover, Photoshop can fix, And if that doesn't work, we just get a blurry lens. (laughs) But the simple fact is that when you look in that magnifying mirror, that one that I watched my wife use to put on her makeup and complain incessantly about what she's seeing, is this thing that exposes and brings everything to light. And the last thing we could ever say is that we are without spot and we are blemished. We're tarnished. And it just gets worse as the years go by. I think I'm the only one who gets younger with age. (laughs) What? (laughs) But that's not really the part that's troubling, is it? The part that's most troubling is that we know on the inside, in our own hearts, and our own thought life, we hardly could be called without spot or blemish. That even in my purest moments, I have no trouble finding impurity. (laughs) You know, it's, it's... is someone comes up to me and says, oh, that was such a wonderful message. And my first gut response is, yeah, it was. <laughs> Thank you so much for recognizing me. It's, it's just, you know, you're casting down vain imaginations. For me, the biggest one is thinking I have something to offer. To believe that you, without God, you're anything more than an empty suit coat. No, the simple fact is, when you look deeply within yourselves, what do you see? You see that there's all sorts of things to not be proud of. And I wish I could say that as you get older, that list gets shorter. It doesn't. That naughty or nice list, checking it twice thing, you know, you just don't want to go there anymore. Because as you get older, you become more aware. You may not become more wicked. You just become more aware. That's why David said, Lord, don't hold me accountable for the sins of my youth. I can look back on my life and think about moments of us overweening arrogance that I didn't even recognize. I know you did, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) No, you see, no matter which direction you look, and if you look with any kind of intensity, what you will discover is that there are... All sorts of things to say that are false about our humanity. So that God says dispel yourself of this renovation project. I remember when my father was trying to help my wife and I buy our first house. And we were living in a country setting and he was taking around all these houses that he'd found. And I remember we went into one house and it, it had seen better years. In fact... It had seen better years before it had even been built. Uh, it was kind of a home project, and you know some of the interior doors were sheets of plywood, holes in it so you could stick your finger to open them up and shut with a spring. And it was a, you know, it was definitely uh, self-built. And my dad was kind of negotiating with this guy, and <laughs> it was embarrassing for me because my dad was very direct, but unlike me. And uh, my dad just looked at me and says, "You know." whatever his name was, let's just admit it. All you have here is an acre of ground. If we were to buy this, we would just bulldoze this place and start all over again. And I thought to myself, you can't say that. That guy's going to kill us. And he looked at me and says, well, yeah, you're right. You see, that's the problem with when we try to fix it up ourselves. At the end of the day, we ain't even got an acre of ground. We come to him in our helplessness. And we come to him because without him there is hopelessness. And we come to him because he is the only one who lived that life of sinless perfection and who offered himself as a sacrifice without spot and without blemish, pure in his entirety of his being. And we come to him and say, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me for I'm a sinner. And as Oswald Changer once said, he says, you never stand higher than when you're on your face at the foot of the cross. The highest point I can come to in my life, the greatest point of personal elevation, is when I am prostrate before the, uh, prostrate before the throne of God. Kind of got that on my mind. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing what, what one little consonant can change. The meaning of it. <laughs> as we, the, All I can do is fall prostrate before the Lord (laughs) and just say, God, forgive me and have mercy. And the moment that we think that there's more to us than that is the moment that we become that person that we wanted God to change again the moment we become, as as Peter said, like the dog that returns to his vomit, and we think we don't stink, we don't think there's anything wrong with us. No. Jesus was God in flesh so that he could be a sacrifice in a very real way, for your sin and for my sin. And the whole point is if there is no virgin birth, there is no forgiveness of sin and there is no redemption because Jesus becomes just another man who died before his time. It matters. It matters tremendously. Because in the same way that Paul said if there is no resurrection our faith is empty and dead. So also, if there's no virgin birth, our faith is empty and dead. That's why the Bible tells the story. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to grasp these things, not only in our heads so that it makes logical and reasonable sense, Lord, but more importantly, that it begins to become a compelling reality in our truth. There is this kind of purient dynamic to human nature, God, that always wants to take who we are and our humanity and somehow make it into something of worth and value and importance, something that we can ornament the tree of our life with and, and point to and say, isn't this wonderful? And yet God, as Paul said to the Corinthians, I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am because I have believed in the gift that your Son provided us through His death on the cross. That I know that I have eternal life because when I die, I will go to be in His presence. Lord I just pray for all of us that especially for those who maybe never have trusted you that today that suddenly they they would be compelled they would feel that call upon their hearts that drawing of your Holy Spirit and they would respond to accepting Jesus. I, I pray for those who have drifted away I pray for those who are confused in their theology I pray for those Lord who have been faithful but have been caught up in the efforts to try to demonstrate that they're better than what they really are. We are not pure, Lord. We are not without spot. We are not without blemish until we have been robed in your holiness by believing on you. I pray, God, that we would live within that reality in Jesus' name. As we continue on this morning, I just invite you to come and partake of the elements. The elements really, as you know, are a portrait of Jesus' death on the cross. He said as often as we uh, have the opportunity, we should partake of them in remembrance of Him. And most importantly, that we would never lose sight of the fact that we are saints in God's eyes because we have been forgiven through His death on the cross that he paid the price I don't know what's going on in your life I don't know your story I don't know your issues sometimes people think I do because it's uh, <laughs> God may pinpoint you I'm up here shooting with a scattergun so I, you know, if something hits you that's, that's divine that's not me believe me I'd love to tell you that I'm that smart I really am not No. if you need evidence I'll bring my wife up But let me tell you that whatever God is doing in your life, you need to allow Him to do it. Because God is very gentlemanly in the way He deals with us. He doesn't force himself upon us. I know some of you think He does, but He doesn't. He waits for us to invite Him. He waits for us to come to that place in our lives where we simply say, "God, I, I can't handle this anymore. This is bigger than me. I'm out of bullets. I'm out of carrots, I'm out of sticks. Nothing seems to be working. But you're the God who did the impossible. You accomplished the improbable. And so I'm coming to you today and saying, God, would you help me? Would you save me? Please, Lord Jesus. And he gives us a promise. Okay, He gives us a promise. If we call out to him, he will come. He will respond. He'll do what we ask. So I invite you to respond to His invitation.